This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. Gil Einstein told me a story that I've been thinking about for the past six months because it really is just something that's almost incomprehensible. Okay, I'm Gil Einstein. I'm a professor of psychology at Furman University. It's something that happened back in 2003, but has actually occurred dozens of times in the past 15 years. It's actually this guy who created a website. And it's something that didn't really occur all that frequently before the mid-90s. Gil told me about Mark Warshauer. On the morning of August 8, 2003, Mark Warshauer parked his car in a lot on the campus of UC Irvine where he was a professor. He got out of his car, he closed the door behind him, and he walked into his office. During his lunch break, he called his mother and told her how Mikey, his 10-month-old son, had just started to crawl. On his way back to the office from lunch, walking, he passed the lot where his car was parked, and he noticed that there were police and paramedics in the lot, and a stretcher, with a small body lying on it. It looked like an infant's body. His initial reaction was, how sad. It looks like a baby was hurt. And then he realized they were all hovering near his blue sedan. The window he could now see had been broken in on his car. The little baby on the stretcher was his own. Mark ran over to the police and paramedics asking, oh God, how is Mikey? It was too late. Mikey was gone. It was the joy of his life. Uh, he and his wife had worked for a couple years to conceive the child. They used in vitro fertilization. I mean, yeah. Here's what happened. Mark had earlier that morning, sleep deprived as many parents of young infants are, put his young son in a car seat in the back seat of his sedan. He had intended to drop his son Mikey off at the daycare before then continuing on to his office, but he had somehow forgotten. I'm sure he started thinking about that paper they needed to write and just drove his normal route to work. Somewhere on that drive to work on August 8th, he simply turned right instead of left, simply drove his car to his office instead of the daycare. Little Mikey asleep in the back made no noise when Mark got out of the car, and it was 80 degrees that day. This actually happens something like, oh, 10 or 20 times a year in the United States in the summer. The tendency of people is to say, what an awful parent. This is Key Dismuke. I'm Key Dismuke. I'm a retired NASA scientist. Key, like Gil Einstein, studies memory. There is no one that cannot make that kind of mistake. They study a certain kind of memory, though. It's the memory to do something in the future, remembering to pick up a loaf of bread on the way home, to write a check to your landlord, to drop your kid off at the daycare on the way to work. It's called perspective memory. In reality, perspective memory is not a form of memory. Rather, it's a task defined by exactly what we intend to do and how. In perspective memory, remembering to remember, as Gill sometimes says, well, given how incredibly cognitively advanced we are as humans, it's strange, but this particular kind of quote-unquote memory or intention to act is actually pretty fallible in us. Like, it's not really all that great in humans. He says that one reason we might not be so good at remembering to remember to do things in the future 
is, well, we didn't need this skill to survive for so many thousands of years of our evolution. Life was simpler. There are fewer things. We knew what we had to do. We were prompted. We were hungry. We sought food. We needed shelter and so forth. We did things in the moment, but we didn't have a, a dozen different things at any one moment that we had to remember. So when our cultures picked up speed, when we started needing to remember and think about what we were going to do in a few hours, tomorrow, the next day, two weeks from now, and to do so while simultaneously doing two to ten other tasks, we adapted. Our memories didn't get better necessarily. Rather, we developed a system, one that depends heavily on cues and signals in the environment. And now think about it. You probably have a Google Calendar filled with reminders. You might have notifications popping up on your smartphone telling you to do a particular task, to call your friend and wish him a happy birthday, or a sticky note on the desk that reminds you to pay your rent next week. Trying to remind ourselves to do something in the future on our own, we may not be so great at it, but we have figured out how to offload a lot of this to our environment. We set up environments of cues for ourselves. We make to-do lists, write reminders on the backs of our hands, or we establish routines with each step triggering us to remember and do the next thing. Take, for example, my morning routine. I get out of bed. I go to the kitchen to make coffee. Being in the kitchen and opening the refrigerator to get milk for my coffee, I see last night's leftovers. And I remember, oh, I need to pack a lunch for myself. I pack the lunch and I sit it on a table in a place where I feel sure I will see it before I walk out of the house. I didn't technically have to remember to make a lunch on my own. I had cues waiting in my path, some of which I put there. But now consider a very common event that plays out within this scenario. Even after all of that hard work of making that lunch, I frequently forget it on the kitchen table. This or something similar has happened to all of us. It's almost surely because the lunch that you packed, the one that's sitting in that Tupperware on the kitchen table, was not in your immediate field of view as you headed towards the door, or somehow it blended into the surroundings. You just simply did not see it. And without very obvious and direct prompting, you simply didn't remember to grab it. Unless we have something to prompt us, we are highly vulnerable to not remembering. Key argues that the level of importance of whatever we're trying to remember, well, it doesn't really matter. We forget really big things. He, for example, studies aviation. He's a pilot himself and he has studied accidents that occur in planes. So there have been several airline accidents um, in which the crew forgot to perform a simple, ordinary task that they've done on every preceding flight thousands of times, setting the flaps to the takeoff position. The flaps are the parts on the wings that are lowered to generate lift on the plane. Once the plane is flying at a higher speed, the flaps are raised because they also generate drag. But for large aircrafts, setting the flaps down is essential for takeoff. However, there have been instances when pilots forget. They didn't realize the flaps were not set. As soon as they rotated to takeoff, there's not enough lift to sustain flight. The airplane crashed in uh, several cases, killing everybody on board. Most recently, the Span Air flight, I think that was about five years ago. I should note that usually when this happens, when a pilot forgets to set the flaps, a warning will sound in the cockpit. But in this case, not only had the pilot's memory failed, but unfortunately, and in a strange twist of fate, that warning system also failed. But why did the pilot forget? He was experienced. He had hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of flying time. He had done this many times. It is about cues. In this particular case, the most recent one, the, they departed 
they were going to depart Madrid, as I remember it. They um, got the cockpit set up. They started to taxi out. And during the taxi out, they performed their normal procedure. There are a lot of things they have to set and check. They did set the flaps to the takeoff position. When they got to the, uh, near the runway, they discovered they had an equipment problem. They went back to the terminal, got the issue fixed. Then they started to taxi out again. It was on the second taxi out that they forgot. Why did they forget? Key says it's because their routine had been disrupted. They had already done some of the steps in their usual takeoff routine. Some of them they needed to redo. But their entire routine had been turned upside down. And that, combined with the possibility that they may have been confused because they did have a memory of having set the flaps earlier, and well, they couldn't remember if they'd done it a second time. Well, all of that contributed to not doing it in this very crucial moment. And it was a mistake that was deadly. So when our routines are disrupted, particularly something we do habitually, we're vulnerable to forgetting to do something. Because pilots may depend on a list of steps that each are in themselves not only actions, but also cues that trigger the next step, when you move those steps around or take some of them out, Trying to go back and fill in the gaps and do the missing steps may be pretty hard. If the cues that normally prompt us to remember to do something are for some reason removed, we won't notice that they're removed, but we will forget to perform the task. These are two different instances. The case of little Mikey's death and the case in which the pilot and co-pilot forgot to set the flaps, they are both failings in perspective memory. But... Each may have a slightly different set of circumstances that cause them. Of course, both of them happened because the right cues were not triggering the intention at the right moment. But in the case of the airline crash, a very well-established routine was broken. It's like breaking a link in a chain of triggering cues. Remove one cue and you may upset the rest of the cues and actions. In the case of Mikey, his father was driving and without a cue to remind him to go to the daycare, his habit just took over. So in one case, it was habit that was disrupted, then an inability to remember precisely where you left off in that routine. But in the other case, the case of Mikey, it was in essence a case in which the action was supposed to be a non-habitual one. And with no cue, there was no prompt of the action. Because Mikey made no sound, because he was in the back seat, out of sight, Mark's habit took over and he drove his normal route to work. So how do we avoid these kinds of memory failings? In the case of some very well-rehearsed routine, Key is insistent. Best thing of all in aviation, and more recently in medicine, is a checklist. And for instances in which you are trying to remember to do something that may be outside the norm of an established routine. Put some very strong cue in front of you, like tying a baby rattle to the steering wheel or something, or better still, to the door latch so that you'll be forced to confront it at that moment. Putting anything in the front seat, put a diaper in the front seat, just put something in the front seat so that you'll, you'll have a cue that your child is in the back seat. Yeah, use good cues. There's one final tidbit of information that both Key and Gil told me about. It's a way that we can create natural cues and reminders by doing a simple kind of association exercise. Implementation intentions. I hate the term. It's a very clumsy term. So the idea is that oftentimes we don't follow through on things, not because we don't want to, 
but that we just don't think of them at the right moment. Basically, if we intend to do something, at the moment we form the intention, we think, where am I going to be when I need to do this? Let me tell you about the research that was done. Uh, there's a guy named Peter Goldwitzer at NYU who um, is a motivation psychologist, and he studies how we can get people to fulfill their intentions. Uh, this was done in the late 90s, but this has been replicated in a lot of different contexts many times since then. The goal was to get women to perform daily self-examinations of their breasts by showing them a video talking about the advantages of doing that for early detection of breast cancer. Uh, but one group, the experimental group, they had them spend an additional 30 seconds thinking of exactly when and where they would perform the self-examinations of their breasts. So that group went through the extra step of forming an implementation intention. So to be clear, all of the women in the study were in fact similarly motivated to self-check. They received the same information about early detection and the detrimental outcomes involved with breast cancer. Some of the women saw this video and they were sent on their way with the instruction to self-examine. This was the control group in the study. The other group of women, they also saw the video. But these women, the experimental group, they, as Gil said, spent 30 seconds, just 30 seconds, actually simulating in their brains the place, the moment, where and how they would self-examine. Saying something like, in the shower, in the morning, I'm going to perform daily self-examinations of my breasts. The researchers then, then brought all of the women back, back a month later and surveyed them to find out who had actually done the self-examinations. The control group, the group that just got a video but didn't simulate where and how they would self-examine. 14% compliance. Um, whereas in the experimental group that spent just 30 seconds more thinking about where they would perform it, connecting the action to a cue, uh, there was 64% compliance. In essence, these women had set up a cue for themselves. They associated the shower to the action. They visualized themselves in their own shower, in their own house, and they envisioned themselves doing the breast examination. It's classic associative pairing. You pair a stimulus, the shower, with a behavior, such that when the cue presents itself, you do the behavior. And the idea is in the people in the control group, they got in the shower in the morning, nothing popped into their minds. But the people in the experimental group, they got in the shower in the morning, and the thought popped into mind, and of course they then performed it. Thank you to Gil Einstein and Key Dismuke for all of their help on this episode. The music and sounds you heard on this episode came from a mixture of Cyrus Rote, Sarah Allen, and myself. The opening and closing music, as always, is from Follies. And Inexact Science is funded in part by a grant from the Association of Psychological Sciences, whose support I am so happy to have. Because of their funding, I'm traveling to a few different labs for this next episode on romantic love and mate choice. I'm also working on a new website, so hopefully both of those things will happen, the episode and the website, in September. Be on the lookout for them. And please, as always, pass this podcast on. Science is explanation, explanation is knowledge, and knowledge is power. <laughs>